Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Okay, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 this morning. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Again, this is kind of, this whole section is a hinge in the Gospel of Mark. It's about halfway through. It's finishing eight chapters in a 16-chapter book. But it's also the halfway point in the topics that are being covered. So Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of your King and your Redeemer, our glorious God. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Uh, when I was a young uh, midshipman at the Naval Academy, one of the things we had to study was the POW experience. I was there not long after Vietnam, and a lot of guys had been involved in Vietnam and been prisoners of war. And one of the most famous was a man named Admiral Stockdale. Admiral Stockdale was a POW, spent seven years of unbelievable, unimaginable suffering. He was eventually awarded the Medal of Honor for how he helped lead other POWs through that experience. Um, he went on after the war and became quite well known in leadership circles. And one of the questions he was constantly asked was, how did you survive this? And why did some people survive and some people not survive the POW experience? And Admiral Stockdale said that there were two groups that didn't survive. The total optimists who said, yes, I'm a POW, but I'm going to be home by Christmas. And they weren't home by Christmas. And they didn't make it. And the other group that didn't survive were the total pessimists who said, this is terrible and this is the way I'm going to end my life. I'm never going to get out of here. He said they did not make it either. And so it became what is known as the Stockdale Paradox. And here's a quote from Admiral Stockdale about this paradox. This is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. 
In other words, you can't be a pessimist. You can't believe you're never going to make it out. But you can't be the optimist who says, I'm not really a POW right now. Yes, you are a POW. It is brutal. But you have to hold those two things together. I bring this up because Admiral Stockdale was brilliant to note this and to put it out. But Jesus taught this a couple thousand years before Admiral Stockdale. And in fact, in this middle section of the gospel, in this hen section of the gospel, this is exactly what he's been doing. He's been talking to the apostles, as we're going to see in just a moment, about what it means to be a follower of Christ, what was going to happen to him as the king, what would happen to his followers, but he also reminded them of the hope and the, the kingdom that was going to come in its glory, that that would sustain them. And he was telling them, you have to have both. And so we're going to be looking at this because particularly the second half of the gospel of Mark is the king is marching to his death. That's what it's about. We, we've named our series uh, here, Jesus, the king who came to die. The first half of the book is describing who he is. The second half is describing what's going to happen to him, what in fact does happen to him. And we follow the same pattern as followers and disciples of Jesus. So because we've had a couple of months off, I'm going to give us a little bit of a quick review of that first half of the book to see how that's why this is happening right here. It's not just random. This is why this is at the hinge point in the book of the Gospel of Mark. The, the first question, again, in Mark's Gospel is the identity of Jesus. Who is he? And the answer, of course, is he is the Messianic King. And we see that right at the end of chapter 8, just a couple of verses before this, we, you remember Jesus has been asking, who do people say that I am? And they're giving the answers. And most people think you're a prophet or whatever. And in this high watermark <clears throat> in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, but what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who makes a mess of a lot of things in the Gospel of Mark, and remember Peter's the one who probably is behind this Gospel ultimately. He's not afraid to share his failures, but here's a high-water mark. Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. And this is such a huge moment in the book because it's been the question that's been laying out there throughout the gospel from the very, very beginning. And Jesus has shown from the very beginning of the gospel that he, in fact, is the king, the son of God. He's displayed authority over Satan and demons from chapter 1 when he came back out of the wilderness, when he overcame in the temptations and then in, in expelling demons. He's displayed authority over sickness and even death, even raising people from the dead. He has displayed authority over nature. You remember he's calmed the seas and he's expanded food and fed a multitude a couple of times. And he's displayed divine authority in the, his teaching. Multiple times the people have said, who is this that he teaches with this kind of authority? In all of these ways, Jesus has done this, but the disciples have not understood who he was until right here at the hinge when Peter says, I'm finally understanding you are the Christ. He's identified as the Messianic King. Now what's interesting is Mark had kind of told us who are reading the answer to the question before he even began uh, to put it out, which is in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the title of the book. Remember in the ancient world, you know, they didn't put titles down like we do. Kind of the first sentence you wrote was the title, and here's Mark's title. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
So Mark says right up front, this is who we're going to be doing. But the first half of the book is a discovery of this. And again, the demons, the, the very first encounter Jesus has with a demon in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, the demon says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. The, the demons know it is, but people have not understood. We've seen the disciples go through a growing realization. You can read multiple times, even the disciples, like when Jesus calms the water, the disciples keep saying, who is this? I mean, they are slow to grasp this realization. And then finally, Peter gives this great realization, this great confession, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You're the King. But the problem is, at that moment, Peter thinks, and so I know what this is, because you remember Jesus, Matthew's gospel expands and tells us, Jesus says, Peter, you are blessed. This was, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. My Father revealed this to you. And you've got to picture Peter probably walked around and said, hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to clean out the Romans. He's going to set up shop. And I'm probably going to be right there next to him because I'm the first one figured it out. And then Jesus turns around and says this in the very next breath. He began to teach them, this is Mark 8, 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This is not the kingship that Peter thought. When he thought he understood who Jesus was, he did, but he misunderstood what that meant. In fact, Peter is so confused, you remember, what does Peter do when Jesus says, hey, this is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna suffer many things. I'm gonna be rejected. I'm gonna be put to death. What's Peter's response? Jesus, you, you, you're a little confused on this, but it's okay, because I'm here. I figured all this out, right? And he takes Jesus aside, and we actually read in the shocking word that Peter rebukes Jesus which is the same word for what Jesus has done to the demons throughout the book. Peter does that to the Lord. But Jesus then has to turn and rebuke Peter. And he does it with these words. In Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, he calls the crowd to him along with the disciples. And he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And so Jesus is here saying, look, you've misunderstood who I am. I mean, you understand who I am, but you've misunderstood what that means, what I am going to do. The nature of my kingship, you've not understood. Well, here's something else. You've also not understood the nature of what it means to be my follower. Because if I'm walking the way of the cross and suffering and you're following me, what are you going to be walking? The way of the cross and suffering. And so he says, in fact, understand this. If you try to save your life, if you think what this means is you're going to be getting all the, just the good stuff now, you're going to actually lose your life. But if you're willing to lose your life, if you're willing to lay your life down for me in the gospel, you will, in fact, find true life. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and understand, the first readers of Mark's gospel were suffering persecution in Rome. So this is important to them because we can ask, I thought if I was the follower of the king, it was all going to be better, right? 
I mean, that used to be, when I came to Jesus in the late 70s, you know, we, we had a little bumper sticker, you know, everything goes better with Jesus. It was a tagline off of the Coke, old Coke commercial, right? Jesus would say, really? That this is what it means to be. So make a marketing thing, come to Jesus and die. That's what he's telling us it means to be a Christian. But see, this is why that paradox has got to be there. How, how do you keep faith if that's the reality in which you're living? How are you sustained moment by moment if what it means to be a follower of the king is that one should expect suffering and rejection and possibly persecution like we were praying for the believers uh, in, throughout the Muslim world this morning? How does one have their faith sustained? Well, Jesus then goes on in Mark 8, I won't turn to all the verses, and says, look, just remember the day's gonna come, I'm gonna return in my glory and everyone's gonna stand in front of me. Live in light of that day. And then it is then that we pick up our text in Mark chapter nine, where he says, I'm telling you, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Don't be a total pessimist. The kingdom is gonna come with power and I'm gonna give some of you who are standing here, uh, you're, you're gonna get a, a taste of that. Suffering and rejection does lie ahead, but the destination is the glory of the kingdom of God. Don't forget that. You've gotta hold the two things together. If you're just an optimist and you think following me means everything is easy, well then what happens when persecution comes? I didn't sign up for this. Actually, you did. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. But if we lose sight of where things are going to end up, then we just think I, th there's no point in doing all of this. So Jesus says you have to have both of these in mind. And he promises that some are gonna taste the kingdom with power. Now, ultimately, he's talking about his death, his resurrection, his coming again, even in judgment in 70 AD, which is gonna be a main theme of the book later, when the temple is destroyed and all these things happen, and ultimately even his second coming, okay? And in, in our After Hours video, and for, for guests, every Tuesday we put out a little video where I get to expand the teaching so you don't have to sit here for 10 more minutes on Sunday morning. But I'm gonna talk about the relationship between the transfiguration and the return of Christ because the New Testament links them together. The transfiguration is a preview. It's, it's a little glimpse. It's like when the movies are coming out, you know, and they show you kind of the highlight reel. That's what's going on here, uh, you know, because if the transfiguration itself were the full thing, Jesus wouldn't say some of you will actually live to this because it's only six days later, okay? Yeah, yes, Jesus, all of us actually lived till six days later. He's talking ultimately about his death, burial, resurrection, coming again uh, in 70 AD and judgment, and then, uh, and then ultimately all of that points forward to the, to the, the second coming. But he's giving us this. The transfiguration is there for those disciples and for us as a glimpse of glory to sustain us on this journey. And so we're now gonna talk with that kind of background. That's been the hinge. We're gonna talk about the transfiguration itself. And there's three key things we need to understand about the transfiguration and how it helps us in this paradox, okay? How it sustains our faith, even if there are difficulties being a follower of Jesus. Number one, we need to understand the transfiguration is a revelation, okay? It is God-giving revelation. Notice in, I've got Mark 9, uh, verses two, four, and seven. This is kind of in here, because what I wanna point out is all these phrases I've got uh, highlighted there in yellow, 
They are all showing a link between what is happening with Jesus and what happened with Moses on the Mount of Sinai, or sometimes called Horeb in the Old Testament, when God revealed himself and made covenant with Israel when the Ten Commandments were given. Now why I say this is, notice in both of them, in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, they go up to a high mountain, Mark tells us. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 15, you can read that Moses goes up to a high mountain to receive revelation. Secondly, notice that we're told specifically, and if, if you pay close attention to Mark's gospel, he almost never tells you how exactly when something happens. He just says later, immediately. Remember, that's like his favorite word, immediately. All of a sudden, one of the few things you can date in the gospel of Mark is here, and he says, after six days. The reason for that, that he's noting that, I mean, it did happen, but he gives us the link because in Exodus 24, when Moses was waiting and God's coming on Mount Sinai, he had to wait for six days. And then on the seventh day, God said, Moses, come up here. I'm going to give you the revelation. I'm going to do it. So the disciples wait six days, and then they go up on top of the mountain, just like Moses. Obviously, Moses is a key figure. He shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's the one who receives the Ten Commandments and the um, covenant at Sinai. But uh, fourthly, notice we're told that a cloud appears and envelops them. And if you remember at Mount Sinai, what covered the entire mountain? A cloud covered you. You remember Moses went into the cloud uh, and did that. And then finally, in both instances, a voice speaks from the cloud. We see that both here in Mark chapter 9 and then also in Exodus chapter 24, verse 16. And there are even others that I could bring up. You remember when Moses came down the mountain, what did everybody notice about the way he looked? He was shining, dazzling white. Of course, what happens to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? He's, so there's all of these links and this is being done. It's, it's the, the way God has set it up. But Mark carefully records all these details because he's wanting us to understand that the Mount of Transfiguration is showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant at Sinai. To, to use our terms from our Advent series, he's the true and better Moses. Moses went up and received a covenant. Jesus is bringing a better covenant. Everything that Moses was looking forward to and hoping and pointing towards, the Father is saying it has come. It is fulfilled. This is what everybody has been longing for for thousands of years. So when suffering comes, do not lose heart. As I was faithful to keep the promises I made to Moses thousands of years before, 1,400 years before, so I will be faithful to keep every one of my promises because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was promised and done at Sinai. That's the first point. Second thing is the transfiguration shows that the new covenant has truly arrived. That not only is it a fulfillment of the old covenant, but it is the beginning of the new covenant. Now, why do I say this? Notice in verse four, as the disciples are sitting there, and can you imagine what this would have been like? They're sitting there looking and Jesus is transfigured, he's changed, but then all of a sudden Moses and Elijah are there. And Moses and Elijah, of course, are two great figures in the Old Testament. Moses represents the law, 
the Torah, the instruction, Elijah is one of the greatest of the prophets in the Old Testament. The law and the prophets are here, and they are giving testimony to Jesus Christ. This is, in essence, saying the whole of God's word and covenant messengers, who were represented by Moses and Elijah, all of them are pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we know it not only because Moses and Elijah are two great figures in the Old Testament, but they were expected to be involved in the coming day of the Lord and in the coming fulfillment of God's covenant and the bringing of the new covenant. Why do I say this? Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. And this, I remind you, is the last word God spoke chronologically until Jesus came. After this, there's 400 years of silence. Here's the last words God spoke in the Old Covenant. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb, that's another name for Sinai, for all Israel. And see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Period, silence, 400 years. And then, on the mount, who shows up with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Because the last thing God had said was, notice, begin, let's go back to where I gave you my revelation at Horeb at Sinai, when after six days, Moses was called up onto the mount. He was you know, changed in his appearance. The voice spoke out of the cloud. When all that does, and I gave my law, remember my covenant with you. Remember all of that. And then I uh, want you to remember that Moses was the prototype of all later prophets. One of the things Moses said is, look, prophets are gonna come. They're gonna be like me. But they're all pointing forward to the prophet the one who is going to come, the true prophet who is Jesus. Elijah had been one of those great prophets. And when you read and you remember, Elijah in his original ministry, he came to a king named Ahab and his wife named Jezebel. And were they good king and queen or bad king and queen? Bad. I mean, they were awful kings and queens. They turned Israel to the worship of Baal. The hearts were turned away from God. They were turned away from faithfulness to the covenant. And you remember Elijah had to have the confrontation. He had the confrontation with the prophets of Baal. Uh, he, he had to go through all this. He had to bring drought on the land and all these difficulties. The land was struck with the curse because Israel was not responding to God's word through Elijah. And so at the very end of the old covenant, God speaks and says, look, Moses is going to come and Elijah is going to come. Remember them, be prepared for them because I am going to come. And then suddenly on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see them. And what's interesting is Mark has structured his gospel in such a way, Elijah was already here in the gospel at the very beginning in Mark chapter one. So he's on basically page one of the first volume of the gospel. And then when you get to the second volume, the second half, guess who's back? Elijah. Now why I say that is in Mark chapter one, 
verses two to four. So he said, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's the next things he says. It's written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so the gospel begins with this idea of a forerunner, the messenger who's going to appear in the wilderness out in the middle of nowhere and calling the people to repentance. And of course, who was the prophet in the Old Testament who did that? It's Elijah. And I'm not gonna put it up here, but how did John the Baptist dress and eat? Remember, camel hair coat, and he's eating locusts. All of this is reminiscent of Elijah because the people were waiting for Elijah. Next week, we're gonna see as they come down the mountain, the disciples are like, why does everybody say Elijah had to come first? All of this is why Elijah had to come first. Now, what's interesting is Mark says it's written in Isaiah because many of Mark's prophecies are out of Isaiah. But verse two, I will send my messenger ahead of you um, is actually not from Isaiah, it's from Malachi the book that we just read a minute ago that I mentioned about Elijah. In Malachi 3.1, we read this. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So this is what Mark said. This is what John the Baptist was doing. He was one coming as Elijah to prepare the way. But notice what's going to happen when that happens. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come. So God says, when the messenger comes and he prepares the way, that's the sign. Be ready, because you've said you want the Lord to come, the Lord is gonna come to the temple. And the entire second half of this gospel is Jesus making a journey to the temple. And hopefully, the temple will be clean and pure and ready. Does anybody want to take a bet on what we're going to find when we get there? Okay? It's, the house is not going to be in order when we get there. But we will, we will travel and trek and see this. So notice, though, this is why there has been the messenger, or, or my messenger is going to come to prepare the way for the messenger. The, the prophet's going to come to prepare the way for the prophet. And that first lesser prophet, his job is to call the people to repentance, saying the Lord, the one you're seeking, is coming to us. And so the, the messenger calling to repentance is John the Baptist. We're gonna talk about that more next week. But so notice here at the beginning of the second half of the book, uh, marking uh, and it reintroduces this theme of Elijah giving testimony to Jesus, the Lord coming to his people, because that's what God had told them in the very last revelation he gave in the Old Covenant, Elijah is going to come. And Mark is saying, look, Elijah came in the person of John the Baptist, and then Elijah himself came on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and said, Everything you've been looking for is done. The time of the old covenant has passed. The time of the new covenant fulfillment is here. All of that is happening on the mount. And then the last thing that is happening on the mount is that the transfiguration is a revelation of Jesus's glory. And in a certain sense, this is really the most important thing. As they're there on the mount, 
And, and we, can, you know, we read here in verses 5 to 8, but what's happened in verse 2, picture this if you are Peter, James, and John. These three who are kind of the inner circle, they've traveled with Jesus, and they've been asking this question, who is this? Who is this? Because on the one hand, he's doing all of this amazing stuff, but on the other hand, Jesus is not 20 foot tall and speaking with a boom. He just looks like another guy. He looks like another person. There's, we're told there's nothing in his presence that would attract you to him, that you would pay attention to. He's not, you, you know, stature like Goliath or something like that. He's just a normal guy. And you go up the mount, and suddenly the veil is pulled back, and you realize who it is before you. When the veil is pulled back, the veil that has been hiding the deity of Jesus is drawn back and his glory radiates, Peter, James, and John are blown away. They have no idea. Tony began this morning in the book of Revelation. John, even after this Mount of Transfiguration, all these years later, when he gets a vision, even of the angel in Revelation, he falls down at one point, much less when it is Jesus. John, who sat next to him, who leaned his head on him. In Revelation, when once again, the veil is pulled back and you see Jesus as he is, there is no other response than to bow down before him. Our eyes are so often veiled. At the transfiguration, God says, here's a peak. This is what it is really like. You miss this so often. I'm going to show you for a second what it is like. And then notice, I mean, I love Peter. Instead of just being silent and falling on his face, what does Peter do? Very much. I, I talk for a living, so I can, I can commiserate with Peter. Right? Ah, uh, uh, wow, this is awesome, Lord. I don't know, let's, uh, hey, how about if we build three little huts, one for each of you, and he's babbling on. And you can probably see, you know, the angels going like, oh, good Lord, what is this guy talking about? Okay? But, and, and I love it. And you gotta love because, again, Peter's the one that explained all of this to Mark. I love verse six. He didn't know what to say. He's talking out of his head. He's, he's afraid, he's confused, and so he just starts babbling. Can we all commiserate with that, right? But I love, see, because what he's doing, he really is talking out of his head because when he says, let's put up three huts, what's that doing with Jesus and Moses and Elijah? It's putting them on par with one another. Now, Moses and Elijah are great. Okay, they, 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 are, they are great people. If, you know, you got to meet one of them, you would, you would be in awe. But they are not Jesus. They are not on par with Jesus. They are only there to point to him, to get everybody else to look at him. And so notice, I love when the Father speaks. He says two things that are key there in verse 5. The voice comes from heaven and says, this is is my son. Stop looking at Moses and Elijah. Start looking to who they are pointing to. This is my son. I love him. I am so pleased with him. He is what it's about. So number one, look at him. Stop looking at the other two. And number two, be quiet. Listen 
Don't talk. Listen to him. Because he is my final word. All that the prophets have spoken is him. All of the prophets are summed up in him. The word that created the universe is standing in front of you, God incarnate in the flesh. The one that was prophesied, he is Emmanuel, God with us. Peter, be quiet and listen. That is what the Lord is saying to him. Can you imagine being there in that moment? And then notice the father even builds this up because as they kind of look around all of a sudden, who's there? Just Jesus. See, Moses and Elijah have done their part and they go away. We are so prone, just let me say for just a second, we are so prone to want to build monuments to ourselves and make everything about ourselves. It is not about us. One of the things I love in church history, I love that John Calvin, the great reformer in Geneva, rightfully known around the world and all this kind of stuff. If you go to Geneva and you want to go visit Calvin's tomb, guess what you can't do? You can't visit his tomb. You know why? Because he said, I want to be buried in a pauper's grave unmarked because it's not about me. Look to him. Listen to him. It's about him. My only job was to point to him. I did it. I'm gone Get past me and go to him. Oh, that every preacher would do that. Instead of building monuments to ourselves, which is usually a sign something really bad is about to happen. Okay? And that's exactly what is going on here. Uh, Peter is wanting to build this, this monument to the three of them, and God is saying, no, don't do that. Just Look to Jesus. Everybody else is about pointing to him because this is who he is. And this is so important because despite the coming rejection, the suffering, the crucifixion of Jesus, the Father is saying, do not miss this point in the midst of all of that suffering. He is the Lord of glory. I, I still, I, I've mentioned this before, but you know the, the movie that was popular 20 years or so ago, the, the Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson made. Very difficult movie to watch. But the one scene I remember is at the moment where Jesus is falling under the cross and he is beaten and he is bloody and it looks like he is no one and he is lost. And, and uh, I think it's Mary runs up to him and he looks up and he says, behold, I am making everything new. It looks like I'm losing I'm winning. It looks like all is gone. I am in control of all things. And right now, at what you think is the weakest moment, at what you think is my loss, victory. I am making everything new. The Mount of Transfiguration is a preview for us to cause us, don't lose who he is. Do not miss and forget. He, he rules and reigns in what so often seems to be weakness. It is so turned upside down from what we expect. But the Father is saying, don't miss who he is. Now, with that, I could keep preaching, but I will stop. You, you can't, when you start looking at this, isn't this astounding to see who our Lord is and what he has done? 
We're going to go to applying the word, though, because this is so important for us. Because I want to bring it down to us. And there is one simple question. Am I beholding the glory of Christ? Am I getting a glimpse of his glory? This life is full of trial, difficulty, sin, and brokenness. If you're not aware of that, I'm sorry to break the bad news to you. But it is, and it's going to be. If you are here and you are just starting out a journey with walking with Jesus, let me just tell you, that's not going to remove you from all of that. This is a broken world. And in fact, as, as followers of Christ, we can even have ex extra added on because the world is piling on us because we are calling out its sin, okay? So we need to understand because if we're not careful, this can cause us to miss the reality of Jesus's identity and what he is doing in the earth today. We can be like, you know, the Stockdale paradox. We can lose hope in the midst of the difficulty. So first question, if you are here, have you ever recognized Jesus's true identity? We are comfortable and we want a human Jesus. You know, I think he was, he was wise and he was great. I mean, he's up there with like Buddha, and, and, and other great religious teachers. And we think we're, we're somehow doing honor to Jesus while we are actually radically dishonoring him. When we broach into his class, who's there? Him. There's nobody else there. He is unique. He is one of a kind. And so we, you know, and this again is so popular. I remember when, the, you know, the Da Vinci Code came out and, you know, and that was a big deal in the Da Vinci Code that, you know, Dan Brown, who if you've ever done anything, you know, what, what he doesn't do is any research behind his books. They're, as a history guy, they're pitiful. They're really bad. But, you know, in it, he makes it seem like, you know, well, every, the whole early church just understood Jesus was just another guy until Constantine came along. And then they held a vote and... They decided Jesus was God. Well, that's all true except for none of it. It's completely wrong at every last point. Everything about it is wrong. That is not, a, Jesus was very, very clear. He is God. He was clear about this in his teaching. Uh, and the early church was clear from the very earliest days that God, Jesus is God in the flesh. And that is good news because there is no salvation apart from that. Do we understand? See, at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is God saying, know who this is. Have I ever seen that? Have I ever understood that? Have I embraced the glory of Jesus Christ? If you have not, I urge you to do so. You, you, you cannot stand before the Father clothed in your own sin. You and I do not have what it takes to stand before but Christ is all glorious and offers to stand in our place. So if you have not, I urge you to look to him. But if you're here and most of us are here and we're believers, that does not remove us from the question of asking, am I regularly getting fresh glimpses of Jesus's glory? 
Because I wish I could tell you, if you just turn to Jesus and you understand who he is, then all of that difficulty will be removed. You'll, you'll be released from the POW camp tomorrow. It's not that way. It's just simply not that way. We face all the struggles of this life, and then sometimes the people we love and care for the most reject us because we're trying to walk as Christians through this life. It can even be added onto it. And so some today, because we, we gotta figure out how do we walk with this, some believers today, one popular option is become hostile back. Okay, you wanna act that way to me? I can double that. I can put it back on you. I can be meaner and nastier than you are, which might work except for it's completely not the way of Jesus. That's kind of the point here at the hinge of the book. That's not the way he rules and reigns. It's somewhat like you remember, because Peter's still learning the lesson, when we get down to the garden and Jesus is about to work our redemption, what's Peter's response? Oh, you come out with swords and clubs? I can pull out a sword and I'll whack off some guy's ear. Right? And what does Jesus say? Put that away. Stop behaving. Don't you think I could call down legions of angels right now that could wipe this whole place out? But if I do that, how's there going to be redemption? Okay? We can be tempted to respond in that way, but it is not the way of Christ. But on the other side, the ditch can become, see, if, if I'm so optimistic that the kingdom is going to come and we're going to rule, that's what I do. Then I'm going to start ruling right now. And you're going to get with the program. On the other side... I can be the complete pessimist and I can become disillusioned and I can become very tired. And if you do that, then your walk with Christ starts to fade. You watch all kinds of folks who go through this and they, they kind of just give up because it just doesn't seem like, you know, I mean, I thought everything was gonna get better, but here I still am. But see, the antidote to both of these Temptations is to regularly have a fresh vision of Jesus and all of his glory. And be clear, for us, that's not that, you know, go find a mountain somewhere, go out to Colorado and climb up a mountain and wait six days. That, that's not how we do it. How do we behold and see Jesus in his glory? It's actually, the good news is, you don't have to travel to Colorado. Tomorrow morning, you and I can open up the word of God and I can commune with God in prayer, and I can come to him and worship, and in doing that, I can have my eyes open and revealed. And this is so critical. We looked at Elijah a little bit this morning, we're gonna do it next week, but I remind you, after Elijah defeats the 400 prophets of Baal, the very next story we read is he runs off, and you remember he's sitting in the cave, and what's he saying? Woe is me, I'd be better off if I were dead. Okay, and the crazy thing is, Elijah, who's called fire out of heaven and done all this, he sees all this magnificent, amazing stuff. You know, the earth-shattering stuff, the, the huge wind blowing by, all of these things, but we keep being told the Lord was not in it. And then suddenly Elijah goes out, and how is God revealed to him? In a still small voice. And Elijah, we're told, has to pull his cloak up and cover himself because he realizes it wasn't all the fireworks 
God is here now. Brothers and sisters, just like Elijah, you need to hear still, small voice. You need to to see that and hear that and know that is the glory of God. But see, here's the reality. The disciples, it's not like Peter woke up that morning and said, hey guys, the three of us are going up today and we're going to get the revelation of the glory. They weren't expecting any of it. They're probably bopping along, talking with Jesus. Hey, Lord, what are we going to do? When are we going? Where are we going next? And then all of a sudden, this happens. And the reality is going to be, because, I mean, again, notice it was after six days. Okay, it's on the seventh day that this happens. It just suddenly comes upon them. And here's what I've experienced, and now I'm actually, it's right around now as my, 46th uh, year of being a Christian. It was in January 1978 I became a believer. So in 46 years, here's what I've discovered. I have no clue if tomorrow morning I will open up and read the Word of God and I will say, okay, I read the Word of God. Now I'm going to go work out. Or I open up the Scripture and I have to cover my face because the Lord of glory comes and speaks to me. I don't know when it's going to be, and nor do you. But I can tell you this, if you don't go up the mount with Jesus, you won't get it. If you don't open the word of God and pray and worship day after day after day, when it's there and available to happen, you will miss it. And so will I. And so the call to us is to regularly spend time, daily spend time in the word, prayer, and worship, providing space to receive a glimpse of his glory. And that's why we're called to gather with the church each week. Let's be honest, you come and you gather with the church, and some weeks it's like, okay, (laughs) that was a church meeting, right? Don't get religious on me. I have those too. And then there's another week And we are singing, and God reveals himself to you. Or we come to the table, and and I get a fresh glimpse of his glory. But if I don't regularly gather, then I miss it. So the, the question for us is two words I'll throw out. Am I faithfully attending to these means of grace? And am I expectantly attending to these means of grace? Day by day, do I wake up and open myself to the Lord and say, Lord, it's a new day. I am here. Speak, your servant listens. Lord, come to me, reveal to me. And do I do that expectantly? Not just passing by it, not just getting through it, not just ticking off another thing on my to-do list, but I am expectantly waiting for the Lord to speak to me. And it may be that some days I just say, okay, Lord, I'm just gonna go about my business now, doing what I think you're calling me to do. But then there's gonna be those days where I am really going to sense the Lord revealing himself to me. Am I faithfully and expectantly doing this? Because brothers and sisters, the king wants to give you a glimpse of his glory. It's not just for Peter, James, and John. God wants to give you a glimpse of his glory to sustain you. And so what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table. 
And this is a great way for us to, to finish because this is kind of an object lesson. Week after week we come here. We come every week to the Lord's table. And it's easy for us to do it and kind of become ritualized. But the Lord wants us to come faithfully and expectantly each and every time. Because there are those weeks when we come and God reveals himself to me as we're at this table. And I remind us of a passage we've looked at not too long ago, one of my favorite for communion. In Luke chapter 24, verses 30 and 31, this is the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, and the disciples are walking along, and they're talking, and they have no idea who Jesus is. And you remember, he, he starts to pass by, and they say, hey, why don't you come in here and eat with us? And in Luke 24, verse 30, we read, when he was at the table with them, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And then he began to give it to them. And Luke records, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he was gone. It's like the mount. But what I want to say is, if you don't stop at the end, then you're not there when he breaks the bread. And we recognize every week, this is an opportunity to come faithfully and expectantly for the Lord to speak to us. So I'm going to do the institution. And I want to remind us, if you are uh, a believer, you are welcome to this table. You do not have to be a member of our congregation. There are some churches you have to be a member of. Here, you do not have to do that. This is the Lord's table. You are welcome to come and be with us if you know that Christ is your only hope of salvation. Taking this bread and taking this cup is a profession that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is my only hope of salvation. His broken body, his shed blood, his righteousness is my only hope. If you believe that, please come with us. If you don't believe it, we encourage you just to let it pass. Talk to me afterwards because I would like to talk to you about being a follower of Jesus. And as a practical note, if you need gluten-free, um, you'll just need to raise your hand so they can get you the gluten-free. Uh, it's in a little bit different place this morning, okay? So they will get that to you afterwards. So brothers and sisters, let's come to the table. What I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to pass out the elements. As we do, I encourage you, be asking the Lord, Lord, open my eyes. May I behold your glory to sustain me in a faithful walk this week. Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Father, we give you thanks for your provision of our daily bread. But we know that we do not live by bread alone and our hearts long to be fed by the true bread of life.
So we pray that like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you would open our eyes now to behold Christ as we receive from him the true bread of life. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. And is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. Lord Jesus, we confess and proclaim that though our sins are many, you have washed them all away by your blood. So now we receive this cup from you with hearts full of thanksgiving and mouths full of praise. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together and we will conclude in prayer and with the blessing. Lord, like the disciples, we often do not perceive you in your full glory and power. But as their eyes were opened on the Mount of Transfiguration and at the table with you, so our eyes have been opened anew today. Lord, so we pray that this week, as we commune with you through your word and prayer, and as we walk with you by your spirit, fulfilling our daily tasks, Lord, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we would behold Jesus as he is, the exalted king of all, ruling and reigning over all things, beautiful, beyond description, worthy of our adoration and worship of our very lives. Come freshly upon us, Spirit of God. Stir up our longing for Christ. Draw us to him new each and every day because he is our heart's true desire. Lord, we ask that you would do all of this in the name of Jesus, the Lord of eternal glory. And God's people say, amen. amen. Now, brothers and sisters, may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better by having your uh, eyes of your heart enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.